Hello and welcome to another episode of Working for the Weekend, Michigan Ross's podcast about the full-time hustle of a part-time MBA. My name is Ayush Mundra and I'm excited to host today's episode. Our theme for this season is uncertainties and journeys, and so far we have talked about the value of an MBA and the right kind of MBA for you. As always, if you like what you hear, make sure you give us a rating and comment on your favorite podcast app to help us reach a larger audience. You can always email us at weekend pod at umich.edu or dm us on instagram at ross wftw pod thank you for listening and let's get started in this episode we are going to talk about the evolution of mba programs to keep up with changing times and produce future leaders to discuss this we have today with us dr anil kurnani professor of strategy at ross school of business and pari russo managing director of part time mba programs at ross It's great to have you both with us today. Hello, happy to be here. Good to be here. So let's start with a brief introduction. Why don't you please just give a brief background and also a hobby you like to pursue in your spare time? So I've been at the Ross School a very long time, forty-two years now, which I think is probably longer than most people at Ross have been here. And obviously, I really like the school here. Like most faculty, I do a mix of teaching. research and consulting my professional interests center around how companies get a competitive advantage and how to formulate a strategy for growth especially in the context of globalization and that has been my primary research interest for many years but in the last one about 10 15 years my professional interests have shifted slightly or significantly perhaps what interests me these days is a broader question of what is the role of business and the role of government and the role of ngos in tackling large societal problems so it's a very fuzzy very broad topic and at this stage in my life i think i want to do something different it's very cool uh, it's very different from what we learned in our strategies for growth class <laughs> which was all about maximizing shareholder value so i'll definitely ask you more about right. that Yes, I know for certain that Anil's business and society elective is very, very popular among students. It's a it's a hot elective to take. So I'm Patty Russo. I'm the managing director of the part time MBA programs here, which we had an evening program, which was sunsetted a few years ago, and we now have a weekend program and an online program. Professor Karnani Anil he teaches in both of them. We are proud to have it. and i basically am in charge of the student experience soup to nuts from when people are interested in the program to admitting the right people in the program to keeping them in line and keeping them happy as they go through the program to when they graduate great to see you patty again i see you Good every weekend you. when i'm there at ross and everything has been so smooth during this entire program it's amazing i run a tight uh-huh. ship <laughs> She's been boss for many years now. Yeah. <laughs> yes, not as long as Anil, though. I don't think I can beat that. Yeah, Anil has been there since like ten years more than what my age is. <laughs> It's been a very long time. <laughs> you know, Anil, and and you know, given the questions that Ayush, I think, wants to ask us, I think he really is just suggesting that you and I are old. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, that's, that's what I think is happening here. But we'll we'll just let that go. Uh, and to put it on record, I'm not suggesting. <laughs> I prefer more experience. Okay. All right. We'll take that. Okay. So first question is to Patty. So you have been the managing director of part-time MBA for over nine years now. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know what changes have you seen in the MBA programs across the country during your time at Ross? And like, because I know you meet different people from other schools as well. Yep. What has yes. been changing? Yeah, I do. And in fact, every week I have a virtual cocktail party with my peers, which I, I just had one yesterday afternoon. Yeah, I think really the biggest thing is the thing that we used to traditionally think of as a part-time student, right? A night school student, someone who's working at their job, they come, they, you know, take five, six, seven years to get their MBA, they go back to their job, you know, they're, they're subsidized by their company. All of those things have really changed. So people want a really accelerated timeline now. People are looking for a experience, right? So, you know, Ayush, you would know that in the weekend program, right? You know, not only do you want these fine classes, like uh, somebody like Anil teaches, but you also want an experience, right? An experience right. with your peers, those kinds of things. And usually, you know, over half of our students end up recruiting for new jobs and move on to um, to other, whether it's more advanced roles, it's certainly roles that are more money or roles in different industries. So um, I think that is probably really the major change is that it is kind of moving more towards more like a full-time experience than the traditional part-time experience used to be. Understood. So people are willing to put in all that work in a very condensed timeline. Yes. And then hopefully make a career pivot out of that instead of staying with their previous company where they came from and like growing within their career. Exactly. I think that is really a big thing to pivot in industries or I think people with really deep functional expertise like engineers or something like that are looking for a leadership role where they decide strategy and they they lead people. I think that is the biggest thing. They lead people. Yeah, I mean, I know that leadership has been a biggest thing at Ross. Like every semester, if there is not a class, there is some experience related to leadership that really gives you that opportunity to lead and uh, train you as a really good leader. Okay, so this next question was for Anil. I wanted to know, so you mentioned, as you mentioned, you have been at Ross for over 40 years now. How would you describe the evolution of pedagogy? So instead of the experience, the pedagogy side of things over the past four decades, and what are some key changes that have happened during this time? Yeah, so I think the two factors that have led to these changes, I think the most important factor is that our students now come in with much more experience. So even in our full-time MBA program, the average amount of years of experience of the students is six, seven years of experience. Yeah. But as in the old days, we'd sometimes admit students fresh out of college or with one or two years of experience. So our students are much more experienced now. And that's even more true because of all these part-time programs that we have now where people like you, of course, have several years of experience and you're currently working too. 
So I think our students in general have much more experience than they used to. And this has been a growing trend over the last 40 years. The second cause of change is technology. And of course, internet and or what's in the news today is artificial intelligence and chat GPT and so on. Yeah. So one of these days, I don't need a job, chat GPT will take over here. Yeah. So what's the impact of these two factors? Is traditionally, we used to teach using cases and lectures. And there was a difference between different business schools on what they emphasized. Harvard was at one end, which almost taught exclusively using case studies. And a school like Chicago was at the other end, which used very few case studies and mostly lectures. But most schools were with some mix of cases and lectures. That was it. Over time, that has shifted. I think the first change was to bring in more experiential learning or what, and clearly Michigan was one of the leaders in that change, what we call action-based learning. And one of the biggest projects that came out of that was the MAP project, which plays a large role in our MBA programs. And we have courses that are more experiential in that sense. Then we went more to internet or online. And my view is that online is not going to substitute for experience. It can supplement experience in some way, but not substitute for it. But this is a very controversial issue. And there are, of course, schools that do everything online, and there are schools that don't do anything online. Now, within online, I think we should divide or make a distinction between synchronous online and asynchronous online. In my view, asynchronous online is a supplement, but it's not a major issue here. But if you watch a video online, but it's not synchronous, well, it's like reading a book or watching a video. It's, I, and one of my criticisms, I'm sort of uh, not only old, but old-fashioned, is I think that everybody's attention span, not just MBAs or faculty, but the world's attention span is getting short. And I think you should read books is good for you rather than just saying, I want to watch it on TV. And reading a book is a good idea. And reading a long book is even better. Or another phrase that you might have read about or heard is edutainment. That education and entertainment are sort of merging together here. And I'm not sure that's a good idea. I think education is very different than entertainment. And my job as a professor is not to entertain you. I want to provide a platform where you can learn. But I'm not trying to entertain you. Want to entertainment, go watch TV. And uh, so I see online asynchronous learning as a supplement to our lectures or case studies, but not a big substitute. Synchronous online is a different issue. Now that there is interaction. But in my view, the quality of technology for synchronous online is just not that great today. Even Zoom is just not that good for interaction. So when I teach synchronously, I see a big difference between that and teaching in class in person. Uh, I can see your body in class. I see your body language. You see my body language. It's hard to do that on a screen. And you've taken my course. 
And I'm pretty aggressive in the classroom, yeah. And I interrupt people. I think it's okay to interrupt people. I think you're talking too long, not saying anything useful. I'll interrupt you, yeah. Yeah. But it's hard to do that on Zoom, yeah, to do that, yeah. Because on Zoom, I don't see your body very well. You don't see my body well. It's hard to interrupt, yeah. But as in class, it's pretty easy, yeah. So I think till the technology improves, and maybe, I don't know, the metaverse will do that or virtual reality will do that. But right now, the technology for synchronous online is not that great. Now, this, I think, makes a difference for some subjects more than other subjects. If the subject matter is such that it's more one-way communication, then I think the technology is pretty good now. But if the subject matter is such that you need a lot of two-way interaction, then the technology is not so great today. And I think an interesting question that plays into this is, what is the primary role of higher education like an MBA? And in my view, the primary role of higher education is not to impart facts. If all you want to learn is facts, I don't know, go read a book, go to Google, it's easy to do that. I think the primary role of higher education is to train students on how to think more critically and analytically for themselves, how to tackle new problems and new situations, not just to regurgitate facts from the past. And that, I think, requires a lot of two-way interaction. And until the technology for that gets much better, I think experiential learning, and this is agreeing with what Patty was saying too, is that we need an experience of learning, not just sort of one-way communication. But there is change in pedagogy, clearly. Absolutely. No, and I feel, at least in the online domain, as you mentioned, the synchronous online experience, COVID has majorly changed all that, I feel. Like, especially because I, I took an online class, like during my weekend MBA program, it was corporate financial policy. Again, it mostly one way, but yes, like that, it was a really good class. I've not taken like something like strategy, which I would say, yes, might not the best in terms of a two-way communication just because of the limitation of technology. But yes, I, I feel like we are at the key juncture where very quickly things will change and it will make online experience really valuable very quickly. I mean, not to say that it's not valuable already. Right. And and don't forget, you know, Neil talked about body language and things like that, but there's also that sort of spontaneity, that kind of organic connection that when people are together physically, that is, you know, that is very, very hard, if not impossible to replicate. But also don't forget that technology has allowed more people and different kinds of people to be able to get a degree, right? So, um, you know, before with a part-time degree, you were limited to the universities that were around you, right? That were within driving distance. And now you're not. Before, with a part-time degree, you had a lot of obligations. You were a mother with young children and things like that. If you couldn't get your, yourself to class for three hours a week or six hours a week, you wouldn't be able to do it. So I, I think that is also something that we need to consider is that it's also opened up these opportunities for people where they never would have had them before. I think Patty is absolutely right that technology has increased access to education. 
one because of geography, as she mentioned, whereas in the old days, the universities were big geographic central locations. Now online, you can be anywhere. It, flexibility in terms of time, that you can do it when it's convenient to you. And I think the third dimension is it can be much cheaper also, yeah, that we can reduce costs. And so online education can be significantly cheaper than in-person with small faculty-student ratios and so on. So we can increase access to education. I think that's a wonderful idea. But at the same time, for people who don't need these dimensions as much, then we would still want to get the experiential part. Yeah. And there is something about being in person that is hard to imagine online. But I think, if I see the other extreme, like our full-time MBA program, a lot of the learning takes place not in the classroom, but outside. Yeah. Like when students or students and faculty together go out for a beer and you chat about something related to business over beer. Well, a virtual beer just doesn't do the same thing exactly. Yeah? Beer has to be real. Yeah? And uh, so there is something about experiential learning that is critical. And a lot of our part-time programs emphasize the experiential part. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And I mean, that that is a really good segue into our next question. So one thing that I felt was one of the biggest value add during my two years at Ross coming closer to graduation. So I just call it two years now <laughs> uh, was the camaraderie that we have within our cohort. And that like, it's very hard to put any number on it. It's like invaluable and will be really helpful throughout my life. I wanted to understand like with the emergence of online programs, managing courses that are on various platforms, Everyone, like, as you said, the access has been very easy, but what can be done by MBA schools and what they are doing to make the online experience a better experience in terms of camaraderie and like what have been done at Ross regarding that, Patty? So I, you know, it, it is tough. And you can even see this, Ayushin, in your weekend program where you talk about how the cohort is so important and everything, but you also have people in your program who it's really all they can do to just come to class and go home. You know, they, they, it's hard for them to have that experience just because of their other obligations. You know, probably a good 50 to 60% of you are really, really involved. Then another piece is somewhat evolved. And then we have some people who just, it's like, all I can do is go to class because I'm busy. And I would say in online, it's sort of the same. It's just the percentages change, right? You have 20% of the people who want to be in leadership and are on the boards that are reaching out to each other and are doing physical meetups and all of those kinds of things. But then there are some people who just can't do that. I think one of the things that has, oddly enough, sort of hurt the idea of people at least getting together socially, virtually, as Anil says, for the virtual beer, which is not half as much fun as the actual beer. I think one of the things that has actually hurt that kind of virtual socializing is actually the fact that a lot of people spend their time on Zoom all day now, right? right. So if we're in a regular workplace pre-COVID, how many people did, you know, Zoom or conference calls all the time? But now I think a lot of times when once people get home, they're zoomed out. The last thing they want to do is log on again. And so I think that has sort of virtual socializing. Our students, our online students have realized it's not real. It, you know, like some people go, but not a lot of people go. 
So what they have done actually, as I said, and we have enough students now in places, is actually do actual meetups. So the students in Chicago land will all get together or somebody had a pool party in Los Angeles, you know, so it's those kind of things, I think, that have become more important because social Zooming is just, it's it's just too much. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree that it has brought people closer, but it has also made it hard to keep going because like right now, Anil, you are in Florida. I'm currently in Chicago and Patty, you are in Ann Arbor. And what's Anil doing in Florida? <laughs> Why aren't we both in Florida with Anil? Come on. We just had seven inches of snow. If you had both come here, we could have done this in person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's the budget for this podcast, Ayush? <laughs> we are running on zero right now. Hence, <laughs> <laughs> Zoom and no fancy equipment. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, yeah, I, I, I can see, like, that camaraderie can still be achieved if you are willing to put in the effort because yes. in an online program, it becomes slightly harder and it's up to you. Like you basically get what you put in. That is exactly right. And that's what I tell students. It's like the, again, just like Anil said, that sort of organic thing of, you know, you're actually here. So, you know, like it's it's during class break. And so you start talking to the person beside you. That kind of stuff doesn't happen that much. So if you want to build a network, you have to be active, really active in building that network. Right, right. I think that that sounds great. And obviously it's a challenge, but over time with technology, I feel like that will be solved as well. (laughs) Maybe as Anil mentioned, right? Virtual meetups and metaverse and things like that. I think as Patty said, it's possible. You, if you are willing to put in the effort, I think it is it is at least somewhat feasible. Yeah. So it's not exactly the same as in person, but it comes pretty close. But it requires more effort on your part. Right. Okay, so I, this next question is for the both of you. I, I feel like every generation of MBA graduates have a certain theme. For our generation, it was a major focus on D and I. And ESG, as Anil mentioned, you are teaching such a course. And while we have done a lot of work in that domain, a lot needs to still needs to be done. I want to understand from you because you get that 10,000 feet view of the programs and the world in general because of the experience. Uh, what are some of the key trends that you're seeing for the MBA graduates who will be graduating in the second half of this decade? So class of 2025 and beyond, like what do you think will be the focus for them? I have strong opinions on the on especially ESG. So first of all, ESG is a very trendy topic. It is also a, a controversial topic. And I think we should all have our own opinions on it based on some data and logic and so on. It is also a very confused idea. So by and large, I don't like ESG, and I'm very skeptical of the whole idea of ESG. I think the whole idea is rather confused. So what what is the problem? So ESG, as you know, stands for environmental, social, and governance aspects. Now, the E and the S, the environment and social aspects, are good for society. Like we should save the planet, reduce climate change, reduce pollution, 
treat people well, have human rights and human dignity and so on. These are good things for society. The G is not necessarily good for society, it's good for shareholders. The G refers to the contract between shareholders and managers. One of the fundamental innovations in the last hundreds of years in sort of social systems is that we have now companies where ownership is divorced from management here. That shareholders own companies, but they don't manage companies. Most MBAs manage companies, but they don't own the company. And the governance respect relates to that. What's that contract between the two? And we want good governance, meaning that the managers should do what's in the interest of the shareholders. So first of all, ESG is a confused idea because the E and the S are very different than the G. So as an example, Tesla might be good for the environment. At least some people think it's good for the environment, electrification of cars. Socially, it's not so clear that it's doing, treats its workers much better than others. Maybe it does, I don't know. But as far as the G goes, it's terrible. Elon Musk totally dominates Tesla and he doesn't believe in democratic governance and so on. Yeah. So for every mixing of ES and the G, I think we should learn to separate. So that's the first part of the conclusion. Then let's talk about the E and the S part, which is I think what matters more to society. Now the question here is, is doing things good for the environment profitable or not profitable? Now doing things that are good for the environment is profitable. Well then do it. Then there is no controversy here. I mean. Why would you not do it if it's good for making money and saving the planet? Just do it. Like a good example would be Walmart is using LED lights nowadays. Now, LED lights are good for the environment because they consume less electricity and emit less heat. But they're also good for making more money because LED lights consume less energy. So Walmart saves money on energy. The lights don't burn out as often, so you don't have to replace them. It requires less labor. It reduces the amount of air conditioning needed. So of course, Walmart should switch to LED lights. It's profitable and it's good for the environment. And every retailer is doing it, whether they are socially responsible or not. That's it, we are done. So then there's no controversy. But now if doing things that are good for the environment reduces your profits, now there is a controversy. Because now the question is, should the manager, for example, should Walmart use electric trucks? Because electric trucks are not profitable, at least not today. And Walmart is not using electric trucks. In fact, if they did use electric trucks, the shareholders would fire that manager and say, no, there's also make money for us here. And I think when there is a divergence between the social interest and profitability, I think we shouldn't do social interests. The job of the company is to maximize shareholder value to its owners. Now the government should step in and say what is good for society. So if the government is so keen on electric trucks, let's ban internal combustion engines totally. But we are not willing to do that. In fact, as you probably know, the current administration now is saying, no, let's drill for more oil because oil has become expensive and uh, the war in Ukraine and so on. Yeah. So it's the role of the government to decide 
what is good for society when there is a conflict between social interest and profitability. And the same logic would apply to social issues. So I saw a cartoon once. There were a bunch of marketing managers sitting around talking about marketing strategy. And one manager says, we should give the customer whatever he wants. What's good for the customer? So the other manager says, what the customer wants is wonderful products for free. And uh, of course, the guy says, well, in that case, let's just maximize share all the value. And uh, <laughs> if there's a conflict, you can't do that. But should you be good to customers? Of course, yes, you should be good to customers. But how good in order to maximize profits? So my view is companies should maximize profits. And governments should make sure that when there is a trade-off, we are taking care of the social interests. Like we should regulate certain products, we should regulate certain social practices, economic practices, and so on. Yeah. And now the trouble is that our government has often not done a very good job of taking care of the social interest. And the solution to that is not that the companies will do it. The solution is to improve the government. And the reason why the government doesn't work well is because we don't work well. We are citizens. There's a wisecrack I like. People get the government they deserve. And this is the government we have elected. We are a democracy. So one of the curious things I see in the U.S. is you ask most people, citizens of the U.S., what do you think of the Congress? And they say, oh, they have a very low opinion of the Congress. But they keep re-electing the same Congress person from their district. Well, I mean, you get the government you deserve. And uh, our government is polarized because our people are polarized. And we have to be politically engaged and change the system. But ESG is not going to do that for us. So I feel that's where now I want to ask you a follow-up on this. What do you see as the role of this next generation of MBAs to fix this? And how can the schools train the next generation of MBAs to be better at this? That's good. This sort of overlaps into a question you had further later on, but this is a good time to bring it up. So I'm hogging the conversation, but Patty, you can correct everything I said here. Uh, Anil, I just want to tell you that when I was in high school, I used to be a member of the Communist Party. So the two of you could probably have a really good debate, but we'll save that for a different podcast. Yeah. So what should business schools do, our MBAs do? My first advice to the MBAs is learn to become an excellent manager and create value. So before we talk about how to divide value, let's first create value. And the definition of creating value is pretty straightforward. The value of outputs should be more than the value of inputs. You've got to create value through good management, innovation, good management practices. That's what business school should teach, most of all. Create value. Then my advice would be create value for shareholders, maximize shareholder value, obey the law all the time. It's not maximize shareholder value by disobeying the law. Obey the law all the time. But I think we should do more than obey the law. You should not corrupt the political process. I think the trouble is that the political process is getting corrupted. So I see companies, for example, in their public statements will say, we think, uh, let's say, fuel economy standards for cars is a good idea. 
and they will produce some fuel efficient cars. But in private, when they lobby with the senators, they lobby against any fuel economy standards. This is corrupting the political process. So I think one of the major mistakes we have made in the US is that we allow money to bleed into politics way too much. And of course, as you know, the Supreme Court in the US decided on what's called the Citizens United case, which says companies can spend unlimited amounts of money on political campaigns. I think this is a bad idea. We should have more transparency in what companies lobby for. I want to know what my senator is listening to. Why is he voting the way he's, he or she is voting? What is the company lobbying for? How much money is being spent in lobbying? And I think the political process should be separated from the economic processes. And companies should maximize shareholder value. And governments should look after the public interest much more. And we need to have a better governance. So what I would tell MBAs and business schools is that don't deride the government. Don't say, oh, government. If I talk to many people in business, they say, oh, government is inefficient, corrupt, stodgy, bureaucratic, and so on. Yeah. Well, I don't know. The government does some pretty good things too. Yeah. And, uh, and if it doesn't do good things, it's because it's our government. Yeah. And so, so I would tell you as a manager, respect the political process, engage in the political process, and contribute to that public good. But as a manager, maximize shareholder value. Or another contradiction I see is companies will say, oh, the government is not doing this, whatever this is, good for society. But then that same company is lobbying for tax rebates or tax abatement for itself. Well, then how can the government function if you're not willing to pay the taxes to make it work? And so stop lobbying. So the company says, don't make me pay taxes, but then says, see, the school system is terrible. Well, of course it's terrible because we're not putting money into it appropriately. And so don't cut up the political process. And business schools should do that too. So I find it problematic that in the business school, we don't teach enough about the role of the government, the legitimate and appropriate role of the government in tackling large social issues. Yeah. And so when I talk, when I talk to people in business, they think I'm sort of a flaming communist. And uh, then when I talk to people in school of public policy, they think I'm a capitalistic dog and I'm just out to make money. Yeah. And so both are upset with me. I think I must be in the right place in the middle. And, uh, or you're a little bit of both. Anyway. Yeah. But I, I think Anil actually brings up a really good, like sort of if you, you think about the business education part of it, you think about ESG or DEI, what is just window dressing? To me, DEI is not that we make sure we have a women in business club or on Martin Luther King Day, we have a keynote speaker. Those are all great, but that's not enough, right? So like, you know, what what do we do so that it's not window dressing? And me, as a managing director, what I strive for is that you want as diverse a population as you can get. And I'm telling you now, it's very hard. It's very hard to get a diverse student population. You also want as diverse a faculty teaching your students. And 
in general, what you want is for people to look around and say, for anybody to look around and say, I see people who look like me. And that is very, very difficult to do. That is a very hard thing. We are all trying really, really hard to make sure that that happens. You know, I've been working for 40 years and um, I worked in male-dominated fields and it was interesting to sort of look around and be the only woman. You know, that was a really weird thing, you know, because you you sense an otherness, even though people were fine, but you sense an otherness that you don't, you know, I mean, I think we probably had those experiences, right? So it that is what you need to do. It is very hard. You must still try to do those hard things, but you need to recognize that, you know, DEI isn't speeches and specific clubs and things like that. It is really kind of making sure that people look around and see people who look like them. I think to add to what Patty was saying, I agree totally. It's that, of course, we should have diversity. And diversity is not only in, say, gender or race or ethnicity or nationality and so on. I think it's also diversity in sort of thinking. And I think one of the wonderful things about a university, which is different than any other institution in society, is that we are really a forum for debate. I think the central idea of a university is it's a forum for debate. And we should debate anything. It's okay to have different views. And so I think one of the problems I see with some of the current trends is like picking on ESG, is that they become the politically correct thing to say, rather than having a real debate about environmental issues or social issues and so on. And so I think we need diversity in, say, business schools, but diverse perspectives. So one of the things that I find problematic at universities, including Michigan in the last, I don't know, decade or more, is we have disinvited various speakers. I think that's a terrible idea. We should, you know, there's old line from Voltaire, I disagree with what you say, but I'll defend your right to say it. I think that's what universities should do here. But you can have a different point of view and let's debate it here. So what I tell my students in this class on business and society that you were referring to earlier is I tell them, look, I have a point of view on ESG or corporate social responsibility or shareholder value and so on. But I'm not trying to sort of push this point of view down your throat. You can have a different point of view and let's debate it. And, And the debate has to be respectful. It has to dignify the other person. And the debate has to be rooted in some data and logic. It cannot just be, I think so, and that's all. You have to tell me why you think what you think. And so there is a line that we use in English quite often, which is, we agree to disagree. And my view is the exact opposite. No, I do not agree to disagree. I'm going to try to get you to agree with me. That's the whole point of a debate. Is I will try to get you to agree with me. You should try to get me to agree with you but in a respectful, dignified manner, without personal attack, without putting you down and so on. And I think that's what schools should do. Yeah, Anil, I, when I took your class, I remember you saying this. And uh, I feel like that has had a very powerful impact on me because I am these days, like whenever I talk to someone, I am trying to like convince them towards what I am saying. 
sometimes it doesn't go down that well, but I think we have to pick our battle. Yeah. Okay, so I feel like the conversation we are having currently, like there are so many ways I can talk more about it. I really want to talk to you more about it, but we have limited time. So I have a couple of departing questions. The first question is for Patty. I want to know what message would you have for class of 2025, the people who will be just joining business school in May? You know, I I would say that it's always the same advice because it kind of transcends technology or qualifications. You know, one of the things is, is that it is a very boring piece of advice, which is that you're going to be busy. So figure out how to get all your work done. I know that's really boring, but that is true. And then a second thing would be to sort of actually build on what Anil had just said, which is a university is a place for you to get out of your lane in a safe way. So come here with an open mind and an open heart, right? So Anil is correct. Listen to people who don't agree with you and really listen and figure out why they feel that way and examine your own biases and examine your own opinions on that subject. Also, do some things that you would never have thought you would do, right? So if you're not a people person, try to do some things that only extroverts do, right? If you're a people person who thinks, oh my God, I can never understand really high level quant, take that advanced statistics course, right? Like that to me is the reason for coming to a university is to really open your mind to other things. That is the sole purpose. I always hope my son just graduated from Michigan undergrad. And I always said, you don't go to a university so that you get a good job. I hope you do, you know, because I want you out of my house. But you go to a university to learn how to think, to learn how to solve problems, to learn how to see the world. And um, I, I hope that we do that at Michigan. I would regard myself as, you know, a failure if, if we didn't have students who graduated like that. Yeah, I feel like that is one thing that we can very easily do with very low risk in a university. And that is pushing the envelope, pushing ourselves in directions that we have never imagined because the worst thing you can do or will happen to you is a bad grade. So Exactly. Talk about a safe space, right? Yeah. Right. And I think one more thing, now that we are surrounded by social media, we sometimes live in these peak echo chambers. And I feel not only listening to people, maybe sometimes even seeking out people whose opinion differed to you is very important these days. Absolutely. Yeah, Anil, I have a final question for you. And that is, what opinion would you have for the class of 2023? People like me who are graduating very soon. Well, first of all, congratulations. You've achieved a major milestone. Thank you. Combine doing a part-time MBA and family and a job and all this. I don't think I could do it. So it's wonderful that you did. Then the second advice I would have is, you know, we call this degree Master of Business Administration. I think the degree is badly named. I think we should call you now. You're qualified to be a student of business administration. Yeah. 
but we couldn't charge you hundred thousand dollars for that. Yeah? So we call it master of business administration. Yeah? And but you should think that this degree is the starting point for a learning journey for the rest of your life. You know, one of the things I find fascinating about business is it's a very complex field, yeah? and you don't become you don't master it yeah? ever. Everybody keeps learning, yeah? and you need to figure out. How are you going to keep learning after you have graduated from the MBA program? And firstly, I think you should read a lot. And I think you should read at three levels. One is read a newspaper. That tells you what happened yesterday in the news. Then read a magazine that tells you what happened last week or last month and gives you some analysis of what happened. My favorite magazine by far is The Economist here which does a wonderful job of not only telling you the news, but analyzing business, economics, politics, uh, and is very well written and well sort of thought out. And then read some books that tell you not what happened last month, but what has been happening in the last few years and what can we learn from it and what trends do you see and so on. So one is read a lot. The second is don't believe most of what you read. Uh, most of what it's written is terrible. Yeah. Now, what you can do in a university or at the business school is we might read an article or a book or a case study and we'll debate it in the class. And as you know, in my class, I often want to play the devil's advocate. Whatever you say, I want to bring out the other side. But in ordinary life, that doesn't happen so often. So I think what you should do after you graduate is find a group of friends five, 10 friends and say, let's read something and let's get together for dinner or drinks and debate what we read. What do you like about it? What don't you like about it? What did the author say that was wrong? And it doesn't matter if the author is a famous professor or a consultant or whatever, they're all wrong most of the time. Just look at read books from 10 years ago and they didn't figure out what is happening today. So, but there are some good books obviously and good articles and so on. And you got have a debate around it. So that's what, how you keep up the learning process. Then at a somewhat more mundane level, I would tell people like you who are graduating from the part-time MBA program, is that there is a difference between a full-time MBA program gives you a natural break in the career. You quit your job, come to school for two years, and now look for a new job. But when you do a part-time MBA, you are already with that company that you've been working with. And one of the problems I see is that most companies don't fully recognize that after you graduate from the part-time MBA program, you have actually become a different person. You've got new skills. You're highly motivated. You've put in an amazing amount of time and energy into this. And they don't recognize that, and therefore they don't reward you for it. So your challenge is to convince your employer that you are a different person, you have different skills, and you should be on a different career trajectory after that. And if they won't recognize it, find a new employer then, yeah. But given all the effort you have put in, you deserve to be well rewarded for it, yeah. That's a great advice. Thanks a lot for that. Uh, well, I think that's all the time we have for today. It was great speaking with both of you some really amazing conversations. I feel like there are so many things I can still talk to you guys about, but uh, I think we'll have to get 
together for a beer for that. <laughs> and uh, Preferably then, in Florida with a meal. That would be perfect, <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's all the time we have today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our wonderful guest and learned about how MBA programs are evolving. Working for the Weekend is brought to you by University of Michigan Ross School of Business. The host for this episode is Ayush Mundra. Executive producers are Bob Needham and Ayush Mundra. Jonah Brockman did the editing for today's episode. Thanks again to all our guests and thank you for listening. See you next time on Working for the Weekend.